Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of our annual prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with David McElraith, who's the editor of The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, A Voice from Gold Mountain. And I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself. My name is David McElraith. I'm uh, the author of the book, The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, A Voice from Gold Mountain. It's a book that I wrote after many years of trying to develop a project based on these diaries that I discovered many years ago. And uh, I started out trying to make a film of the project, which didn't happen. But fortunately, uh, I was able to use all of the research I did on the film to write the book. I've been an actor in my life. I've been um, a director of uh, documentary films. Uh, And I've now discovered that I love writing and plan to do a whole lot more. The Diary of Duke Sang Wong is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. And David starts the conversation by reading from the introduction of the book before reading some of Duke Sang Wong's diaries. In the spring of the year 1867, in a Chinese village a long day's journey north from the capital city, a local family hosted a banquet. In all likelihood, the regional magistrate, an officer of the imperial court, was given the place of honor at the banquet table. As if his position in the community were not reason enough for the seat of honor, just a few days earlier, he had ruled in favor of his host in a land dispute. Though the beginnings of a breakdown in civil order were seen to be spreading throughout China in the aftermath of the Opium Wars and the ongoing rebellions, appointees of the emperor's court still had authority and were generally treated with deference and respect. The magistrate couldn't possibly have suspected that the food set before him that night would be laced with arsenic, and that he would die before the sun rose the next morning. The magistrate's only son was 21 years old that spring. He was deeply affected by his father's death. In the days and weeks following the poisoning, he began to keep a diary, a record of his grief and confusion during a tragic time in his young life. He would continue to keep the diary through tragedy and triumph for five more decades, For over 50 years, Duke Sang Wong made compelling and eloquent entries in his notebooks, first about his life as a young man in Imperial China, then about the life he went on to live half a world away on a continent he called the Land of the Golden Mountains. Little did he know that more than 150 years later, his diary would become the only primary source, the only known voice for thousands of his generation. Now I'll uh, move on to quotes from the diary itself. Spring 1880. I have decided to venture to that country they call the land of the Golden Mountains. The next ship that departs from those shores is the one which I shall be on. Because I cannot build upon my own land in this country, it is right that I should attempt to seek land over the ocean. Several men with whom I've talked tell me of the opportunities of establishing a home over in those Western lands. It has been said that the land to which I am now heading is wild and uncivilized, that people kill each other daily. 
All the business and the laws are controlled by white people, while we are not permitted to rule over our own actions. There surely must be some areas where it is not so barbaric. Now I'm going to move on to later on in the diaries, once he is, arrives in Canada and uh, begins work on the railway. My soul cries out. I wish I had never experienced such bad days as those in which we now live. Many of our people have been so very ill for such a long time, and there's been no medicine nor good food to give them. Even the strongest of us are weak without medicine to fight against these diseases, which spread very rapidly. It is such a sorrowful sight. These are troubled times for us Chinese. There has been word among the employing company that we are not good workers and do not work enough for the schedules and plans of the railway owners. How does one work when so ill? Many are killed when such words are spoken, and we are becoming more like dogs, biting at one another. My meager attempts at talking about being humble and waiting for better days are senseless. My words mean less than nothing. I am of so little help to everyone. And then in 1885, he writes, There is much work to be done and not enough people to labor at it. So many of us Chinese suffered and died recently, I cannot recount them all. But the Western people will not allow us to land here any longer while they scold us for not working enough. How these acts wear my soul down to nothing. Kwong tells us about the laws the white people have enacted to prohibit any further landing of our people. I cannot understand why. The work is great and there aren't enough laborers. But my words are meaningless and my strength to speak now falls upon deaf ears and closed eyes. These mighty lands are great to gaze upon, but the laws made here are so small. And now I'm going to jump to the very end of the book, the very end of the diaries, and read the last entry. This is in 1918. It is still the feast of the full moon. I am doubly blessed, for in my desires, I have both prayed to the Christian God and allowed incense to be burned in our garden. My fate now has provided a daughter, a precious eighth child, a great joy for all this house. Her brothers will know this goodness and take care of her, loving her. She has come in my old age, a joyous sign, and she will be able to bring me pride, I know. It is good. Her brothers are men now, so she will be assured a good life. She will look after Lynn when I leave these lands for the final journey homeward. So you just touched a little bit on it, but I, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about how you stumbled upon these diaries, because uh, you kind of had, a, in a way, you had two co-collaborators on this book. You had Duke Sang Wang himself and his words, but there was also another person involved as well. And I wondered if you could talk about Wanda and also how you discovered the diaries. It's interesting. I decided that I wanted to write about the Chinese experience in Canada many, many years ago. And I, uh, long before I had any idea that I would be able to find something as extraordinary as the diaries of Duke Sang Wong. And it all began when I first read uh, some of Pierre Burton's work, and he wrote about building the Transcontinental Railway in Canada. And uh, and I remember he devoted uh, four or five pages to uh, to the story of the Chinese workers who built the section of the railway in the Fraser Canyon. 
And, and I was always fascinated by that and uh, I always wanted to do something with it. Then I went on to do other things uh, and in my life. And uh, one of those things was make documentary films. And I made a documentary about the lynching of a, of a young indigenous boy in British Columbia in, in around the same period in the 1880s. And uh, there was a quote in that uh, film that came from um, a, a police report that was done during that period in the 1880s uh, after this lynching had happened. It was made by a policeman who was sent uh, undercover by the B.C. government into the Washington Territory, which is now Washington State, from whence the lynch mob had come seeking this young 14-year-old boy whom they believed had killed a storekeeper in their town in Washington. And um, they, this policeman interviewed some of the lynch, the lynch mob members who were simply, you know, townspeople and ranchers who lived in that area. And he, uh, he said something that shocked me. He, and, and the policeman wrote it down verbatim. He said, uh, I kill a Chinaman as quick as I kill an Indian and I'd kill an Indian as quick as I would a dog. And it, that, that struck me as a, a extraordinary and terrible thing to say. And I, at the time, was working on a, 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 the film about the indigenous experience and was you know, well aware of the, the racism and, uh, that went on in that story. But I was struck by the fact that he included the Chinese in this. So that was why I decided I wanted to, to, to do a project. Uh, it, I, I remembered the, the, the section of the book that I'd read by Pierre Burton and decided that I wanted to pursue it. But the, the, the films that I had made, the lynching of Louis Sam being one of them, were made from documentary uh, materials from materials that had been found in museums and archives and so on. And I decided that I needed that to write the story of the Chinese experience. And, uh, and although many authors, many people who'd written about it before all said that there was nothing that existed uh, in terms of first person experiences, I decided that couldn't possibly be true. There were 17,000 Chinese workers who came to Canada at that time. And uh, it just was impossible that Nobody wrote anything down. Uh, so I started searching and I searched in China. I made two trips to China searching there. And then, and I wasn't able to find anything there. So I came home and I started looking in BC in um, the small towns around the Fraser Canyon, thinking that who knows, there might've been something found there. And sure enough, I found a piece, I, I and a, you know, someone that I, I worked with have found a piece of paper in, in a museum in a small town in in the Fraser Valley. And uh, it was made, it just simply made a reference to this diary that had been written by this man who had worked on the, on the CPR and the, the name of his granddaughter uh, who had written some translations of that diary for a project she'd done when she was a charter student at Simon Fraser university. I called Simon Fraser university and was able through their alumni department to discover that she was still living in Canada and that, but they weren't able to, they weren't willing to give me contact information, but they did offer to contact her themselves and let the, her know what I was looking for. And a couple of days later, she called me and told me that she had 59 pages of typewritten mimeographed 
paper that she'd written for this professor and, uh, and had been sitting in a box in her garage ever since in Ottawa. So I got on an airplane and flew to Ottawa and uh, went through some boxes with her in her garage. We found the, the paper and I sat down and started reading it in her living room and realized what an extraordinary piece of, of history it was. And she was willing to let me go with it and uh, see what I could make of it. Her name was Wanda Joy Ho. She was the diarist's granddaughter. <clears throat> when I was reading from the, the diary, I, I, the last section that I read was about the birth of Duke Sang Wong's daughter, his only daughter, the, his eighth child. She was Wanda Joy's mother. And Wanda Joy is still alive and living in, uh, in, in Ottawa in a senior's residence there. And I had many, many conversations with her. And we sat and talked about, about what she never met her grandfather, but she had heard many stories throughout her childhood. And, you know, I am forever grateful, as, as Canada should be, <laughs> for the fact that she did those translations and, and, and held on to that you know, university paper she wrote all those years ago. Yeah. What do you think it's meant for our understanding of Canadian history and BC history to not have first-hand accounts until this book of the Chinese experience in the early days of the province and working on the CPR? Well, I, you know, I think that the, uh, I guess you can call it the settler mentality has done that, uh, I mean, we're going through a terrible time right now and have been in the last year with the discovery of the bodies of Indigenous children in, you know, on the grounds of residential schools. And, you know, as as much as we like to think that we had real knowledge of the horrors of the experience that the Indigenous people suffered through colonization, we're still shocked by that. And part of the reason that we're shocked by it is because it, 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 we did not talk about it. It was not, it was not put forward. Uh, the information was not out there, you know, when, and when books were written about the Chinese experience, the same thing was true. They, there wasn't first, they, there, or at least they believed there was no first person uh, record of those experiences. And so they just, they would devote a few pages to, you know, yeah, they, there was racism, and but they, they worked hard and they were hard workers. And as opposed to a real emotional first person story that paints a vivid picture of what life was like for those people. And, um, and I think that you, it, it's only when we can have that reality, that, that startling and disturbing reality when we hear the kinds of stories, whether it's the indigenous people or the Chinese people, or I'm sure the Japanese people in their, you know, their, their situation during the Second World War, all, all of those sorts of t- moments in our history that we, we prefer and have preferred to sweep under the carpet. And, but first person accounts kind of bring the, the, that forward. Yeah. I was really taken while I was reading the diaries by, I think, and it was also just an interesting time in what we've been through with anti-Asian racism in BC and across North America following the COVID virus. But it was interesting to read the book and to read Duke Sang Wong's experience and the experiences 
of throughout his time in Canada with anti-Chinese and likely when the Japanese were there as well, anti-Asian racism on the coast. And just, well, sometimes it feels like it's new because of COVID. It's, it becomes apparent through his diaries that it's been, it's part of our history in this province and we haven't really dealt with it. And I wondered how you felt about reading that when you were reading the diaries. Well, I, I, I think you've just expressed it really well. I, I, I think that's exactly true. I mean, I, it's, that's absolutely what's gone on. And, you know, the, 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 what people like to call the woke mentality, I guess, um, has for the first time, probably since um, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream period, are looking at the realities of the kind of racism that is inherent in the society in which we have lived on the North American continent for, you know, generations. Um, and to, to, to imagine that somehow we move beyond that, that somehow we're clear of that <clears throat> has been proven in the last couple of years. And I think COVID probably that the, the, the kind of, the lockdowns and all the other issues that we've had to face um, have given people more opportunity to look at the world uh, because they're not so busy all the time. (laughs) You know, they have time on their hands to actually sit and look at the world and go, wow, that, you know, we're, 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 we're dealing with some real important issues here and, and we haven't overcome these issues. We haven't at all. They're still very much part of our society. And, uh, and we have to, acknowledge that inside me in some way and i think that i hope that that stories like duke sang wong's story help that process in some way yeah i think the other thing I, f- I found interesting and i always find interesting in reading stories like this is that because we receive this history and these stories often through a white settler lens we don't get the broad scope of what life was like. And it wasn't just folks working on the CPR. And you talk about how the role that the Chinese community had in laundering and farming. And also, you know, he got into being a tailor and just like the various impacts they had on so much of the development of industry and the economy in the province. And I I wondered how you like, if that was new to you as you were reading that too, because I always find that myself because we get that limited lens sometimes and then suddenly the ed- the edges get blown off and it, it seems like, of course, we always knew that was there, but somehow we needed needed someone to put the dynamite in or something for us to really see it. I, I think I think probably that's true. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, I discovered the diaries discovered. I, I didn't discover them. That's like saying Columbus discovered America. I, I, I found the diaries. I found, I was able to find the diaries in, in I think two, 2009 or something like that, 2008, 2009. So I had them for a while and that set me on a, you know, on my, on the path of a lot of research. And I did a, you know, 10 years of research on all of this. And it, that involved things like, for example, going to communities that I knew had Chinese populations and considerable Chinese populations during that period. And some of them, like all through the Fraser Canyon and Valley, up along Thompson Plateau, all through there, you know, there were significant Chinese populations, towns that had majority Chinese populations. I, I don't like to, 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 to 
pick on any any one individual community, so I, I won't. But I went to several, and several, you know, the, there's a story that I will tell is is uh, was uh, true of several of them. I know of one town that had a majority Chinese population at one point. Yet, you know, once I started work on the diaries, I went to visit this town, and they had a a museum. And uh, outside the museum, they had a big board with lots and lots and lots of photographs of old photographs of the people who had settled the town and the community, how, how it came into being. And of the many, many photographs that were on this board, there was one single Asian person in the photographs. And he was the houseboy of the Anglican minister in the church there. And that was a town that had a majority Chinese population for many of its years. So though that period in its history was erased. And I think that that's true of dozens of communities up and down the Pacific coast in both the United States and Canada. There was simply an erasure of the existence of that community and the impact that it had on the towns that they were in and the impact that it had on the communities that they were in. So it became more convenient or more, more in keeping with the, with the inherent racist tendencies to pretend that those people were never there. They were erased not only from the, from history, but they were erased from the landscape. They were they were literally moved out of towns, driven out of towns. They were attacked. Some of them killed. Many of them killed. And those are stories we don't like to hear about any more than than we like to hear about lynchings uh, in, in the United States or uh, residential schools in Canada. I mean, there it's all the same. All comes from the same root. You mentioned the the decade of research you did for this book and also that when you found when you found the diaries there were 58 pages but mm -hmm. if i remember correctly that was not his full diary that wanda joy had just translated parts so i was wondering what it was like for you to kind of take that and you really kind of filled in the gaps with your research and the work that you did but how like it's not a big book it's a there's a lot in it but it's not a big book so i imagine i imagine there was a lot of research that didn't get included in the book and i wondered how you kind of um, decided what fit and what maybe goes in another project or goes somewhere else well that's that's an interesting question that is that should go to both me and to Wanda Joy Ho, because she chose not to translate certain parts of the diary uh, because she was focusing. She the, the the course that she did it for was was mostly a sociology course. Mm -hmm. So she was interested in telling the story of a family, hers, and the transition that that family made <clears throat> from China to Canada. And so, you know, she book she bookmarked it really interestingly with well, from the moment he started the diary, but decided to stop it at the point where her mother was born, because that then brought her to the story she was telling <clears throat> that that she had these grandparents that had come over and created a life for for her mother and her and her uncles. And even within the, the diaries over those years, there were sections that she didn't translate because they weren't directly related to that kind of sociological story of transition. And, you know, the same is true 
with the work that I did. I mean, I, before I, di- I discovered the diaries, I was still determined to write the story of the Chinese experience in Canada. And so a lot of the reasons when I couldn't find anything, especially after my trips to China, I wasn't able to find anything there. I just did general research on the Chinese situation in Canada. And there are many, many stories that I, that are, uh, that I tell in the book that come from that period of my research that aren't necessarily directly related to Duke Sang Wong. However, I did choose for the most part to be guided by him to be guided by the, the, the diaries and to tell the stories and to expand upon the stories and fill in the empty spaces in those stories from, you know, from my research, but not to, not to be writing a book about the history of the Chinese in Canada, to write a book that told some of that history through the story of Duke Sang Wong. So, yes, I think there's lots, there's lots more to tell. And I, you know, I, firmly believe that there's more out there. I really do. I believe that some, in some other little museum, I mean, every museum in, in BC that I went into had, had storage rooms full of boxes of letters and things like that, that were part of those Chinese communities that were in those towns that have kind of shunted that, that part of their history aside. So there, I think there's more to come and, and I think other researchers will find it. Um, and I also think that it's, you know, that there will be some of that stuff in China. They, I, the Chinese colleagues that I worked with in China all said that they feared that much of it was lost during the Cultural Revolution. Mm. Um, and uh, because the, that was such an anti-Western movement uh, that they just wanted to remove any reference at all to to the influence the West might have had on China. But but I, I suspect there's things there as well. And I, so I think the story is only just beginning to be told um, in, in some ways the same as the Indigenous stories are, are now beginning to be told quite publicly and openly as they should be. Were you sharing parts of the books that you had written with Wanda Joy Howe as you're writing them or did she get to read it all kind of as it was finished? She, she got to read it all at the finish. I mean, certainly we, we, we taught because I, I mean, I had a hundred thousand questions for her when, you know, from reading from the diaries, who's this, who's this, you know, what was that about? Um, and so, some of them she was able to answer and some of them she wasn't, you know, I mean, her, she, her grandfather died 14 years before she was born. So she, you know, did not have obviously firsthand um, experience of, of of being able to ask him. She, her grandmother, however, did live for many years uh, in her house with her as a child. So she certainly heard stories, but she wasn't able to ask specific questions. And and you know, as I as I said in the diary, I think there were some details that weren't talked about in the family, <clears throat> and that's true of any family. <laughs> what what was her response to the book after she read it? Uh, she was very. She was thrilled to be able to uh, to have she she I think at some level she always wanted uh, the story to to have a bigger audience than you know her university professor, um, but just didn't know how to go about it, and um, so I think she was pretty uh, pretty pleased to finally have the story out there. She, she you know I mean she is ill. And has spent much of the last couple of years when the, you know, the book was being, most of the book was being written in lockdown. So often I was, wasn't able to talk to her. <laughs> For some reason, 
I don't quite understand, but she does not have either a computer or a, a cell phone. So I wasn't able to even call her up to get clarifications on things. But whenever I could, I went up there and up to Ottawa and um, and just sat down with her and asked her questions. And, and you know, often she just had, had, had to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But she was, even though she had never knew the man, she was very proud of what he did for her family, for her, you know, he was a deep believer in education um, and, you know, uh, had one himself, obviously, which was unusual to begin with, but also, you know, sent all of his children to university and um, they all went on to become doctors and uh, pharmacists and you know, all sorts of uh, professions. And um, he he just was such a strong believer in education and in being aware of the world around you. And so she had, she was very proud of the fact that that story could be told. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I literally spoke to a, a, a university professor when I first started this project saying, I'm, you know, I'm on the lookout for a first person account of the Chinese experience in Canada. And that university professor said to me, well, you'll never find it. They were all illiterate, you know, and I, I, I mean, I remember saying to him at the time, well, we, we know that's not true because there were scribes. There were people who were scribes who would write letters home for their, for their comrades and so on. He said, I don't know. I can't remember what he did. He kind of dismissed it. But I, I, if I had it to do over again, I'd, I'd get into a real debate with him. <laughs> but that was a long time ago. But that, but that was a general opinion that was, you know, not only held by by the public, but by by a university professor. Um, I hope you mailed him a copy of your book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I haven't thought of that, but that's a very good idea. I think I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I he might be. Yeah, I mean, what a what a. I guess it really points to the, as we've already discussed, that kind of that white settler perspective of things that that they were. Why would why would, they have been illiterate? Like it just because they didn't write English didn't mean they didn't write in Chinese and exactly, yeah, exactly. No, I know. And it's, uh, you know, and it's, it's so, so fascinating. There's this wonderful, uh, see if I can quickly find it here. I don't want to take up too much time, but there's a great thing in here that he, when he tells the story of uh, meeting um, here, he says, today I met an Englishman. This was the, he's still in China at this point. He's, uh, it's before he leaves and he's, he's being a tutor of tutoring the children of the rich and he says, today I met an Englishman who seems to be knowledgeable and with whom I spent the entire afternoon. He tells me of a Christ, a savior, and that this Christ died for my soul. It is an interesting concept, my soul to be saved, but from what? There's no reason for this salvation. <laughs> I mean, just things that, I mean, but he really, he's really interested in, in the ideas that this person puts forward. So, so then he goes on to say a little later, I have met with the Englishman on four more occasions. He is not English at all, but French. But in any case, also a barbaric land, I am told. <laughs> so this, you know, this, we, we like to think that we were the, you know, we were the, the, the cultured, wise races and the, everyone else was barbarians. But they, the Chinese often thought that the Europeans were barbarians because of their wars and their whatever, you know. So it's a... Uh, 
it's interesting that that we we've carried all of that with us for so long. Thanks to David for being on Writing the Coast, and thanks, of course, to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you're interested in finding out more about the collaboration and work David did on the Diary of Duke Sang Wong, you might want to attend our October Storied, coming up on October 27th. David and Bryony Penn will be discussing creative collaborations with Carol Shaben. For more information on this event, visit our website, bcuconbookprizes.com. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Annabelle Lyon, whose book, Consent, is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast. <laughs>